Bradley Then and Now, exploring the college archives in conversation with our community. Welcome everyone. Uh, today we are looking at the wonderfully creative and much loved Marionette Society. This society stirs up fond memories for all who participated or watched the sellout shows of the 1950s, 60s and 70s. But the Marionettes was about so much more than puppetry. The society brought together arts and crafts, music, acting, writing, including satire, in a way that no other spectacle could. We've had more members of the Radley community get in touch about this topic than any other, so this should be a fabulous discussion. Now, I am absolutely delighted to be able to introduce our speakers. As usual, the incredibly knowledgeable Claire Sargent, our college archivist, is on the call and will be leading the discussion. And I'm hoping, although I can't see him, that we are also joined by Hamish Ed, who retired Radley Don, um, to add his thoughts and memories. Over to you, Claire. Hello, it's very nice to be talking about the marionettes and thank you, Sophie, for the introduction. The marionettes go right the way back. Um, it, we've got a 40 or 50 year history to talk about here. But what I'm really relying on is that rather than me just going through a sort of chronological list of uh, performances, is that you will all chip in. We've had a lot of um, uh, memories that have already come through, and some of those I've added in uh, to the discussion. And if, it, if one of those is you, then please chip in and tell us a little bit more about that memory. I'm also I'm going to share the screen. So we're going to have what photos we have and a few little pictures and so on. So the marionettes. I've got in front of me the logbook of the Marionette Society. Now my first uh, request is that I've got the logbook for 1940 to 1950. I've then got the logbook. Let me get it out. The logbook from 72 to 79. And the one in between. So somebody out there has got Radley College Marionette Society logbook for 1951 to 1972. If you've got it tucked away, it would be really good for it to come back. What I also do have is a wonderful thing, which is 65 to 81, and that is the full list of members. So that basically is everyone who was a member in those years with a full list of exactly what part they played in each of the marionette productions. So there's no hiding. This is all here and can all be made available. That's not a threat, by the way. <laughs> Where we start is back in 1941 and 42 with The Sword in the Stone by T.H. White. And these are the photographs from the logbook. And the logbook starts off with the history, which they reconstructed with a little note that says before July 1941. So if you're sitting comfortably, I'm going to read the story. One bleak Sunday in November 1940, Herr Brand, a man of international fame as regards his world-famous marionette show, which Radley College has on many occasions been privileged to see, 
gave a lecture with lantern slides, as well as with some of the actual dolls in the science lecture theater. This lecture was only for those boys who were interested. Needless to say, uh, this is 1940, uh, Eastbourne College were already here evacuated and Eastbourne had already seen him. So the Eastbourne Marionette Theatre members uh, turned up, but it appeared that very few of Radley's senior boys were interested enough to come, although quite a few juniors were present. The lecture itself proved interesting, although the patience of a few was tried by the fact that Hairbrand's actual speech was a trifle hard to follow. Practical knowledge was gained by all when his son explained at great length the intricate works of a puppet and parts of dolls, incomplete and finished, were passed around. The lecture finished with the showing of some coloured lantern slides of actual scenes in some of Hairbrand's most well-known shows. By this lecture, it was hoped to arouse enough enthusiasm amongst the Radley boys to form their own society of theatre, which thanks to great help given by R.R. R. Simpson, Esquire, the Eastbourne art master, was at length formed. Now, Herr Bran was the Munich puppet master. Um, he and his theatre troupe had left Munich in 1934 uh, with the rise of Nazism, I assume. Uh, and they came actually in 1938 and gave a performance of a, of a nativity at Radley, which impressed by its sheer beauty and power. And the Radleyans sat down and said, let's, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna do this? Eastbourne and say, we're here already. They already had a puppet theater. There are one or two other schools which had started marionette societies. And at Radley, the whole thing had to be worked out. You needed to find the puppets, you needed to find the costumes, how to operate them, a place to operate them, the theatre, music, everything. And the very first thing they decided to do was to adapt a fairly recent novel, T.H. White's The Sword in the Stone. Why is my screen black? And you can see here, we've got the puppet of King Pelinor, and many of you will recognise already the style of Radley puppets. Uh, the Sword in the Stone was adapted by uh, Brian Worthington, uh, who I was told only this morning was still very active and very keen on puppets and model making uh, well into old age. A colleague of mine is actually a relation and knew him and um, uh, went across to see him frequently, and he had a garage which was still full of puppets. His daughter also uh, became a modeler and is now a costume designer. So you can see the link we're already getting, that uh, the marionettes is an all-consuming career-creating um, uh, topic. So we started with the sword in the stone. It started with this wonderful creature here, who was apparently modelled on Disney's Pluto and became the, uh, the questing hound for Sir Grummer Grummerson. And I'd love to know 
what wall in Radley they're actually performing off here. And, and quite uh, now, health and safety now suggests that uh, boys are not encouraged to hang over the front of balconies with, uh, with preachers on strings. But obviously in 1940, there were. By 1946, they had embarked on some really extravagant pieces. The, the Marionette Society remains the only uh, society or area of Radley College which has performed the whole of Mozart's Magic Flute with full cast and orchestra. Nowhere, nowhere else do we do such wonderful things. And what I really liked here was this, um, that you can see in this photograph, how it's whole, how the uh, scene is held up with all of these bits of, of wood and so on. So we started very early on with the magic flute. Soon after this, uh, Chris Ellis arrived as art master and threw himself into helping with backdrops. And you can see a little bit of that again, still on the magic flute with the figure playing the bagpipes, books, all sorts of bits of uh, prop, which are just there. And then one of the key characters is David Bass. Now I know that uh, Nick Hatton, I think is on the call here and was going to, uh, and remembered actually meeting Nick Bass who was here with his father, Richard Hatton, who was also part of the early uh, crew. And, and David is top at the back. I don't know whether that's actually visible. Sophie, is that visible to people? But on my screen, it's behind everybody's images. So I think just about. Yeah, yeah. So he's just about there. Um, and the thing about David Bass was that already it, it's called an outstanding performance. Uh, clearly, the work of a highly accomplished performer, and he was the first of the Radleyans who went on into a professional career as a puppeteer. So that uh, later on he turns up uh, coming back to Radley to advise on the Marionette Society to give um, uh, demonstrations of his own uh, puppet show. It's charmingly made up by Mr. Ellis and beautifully dressed by Miss, I assume her name is pronounced Kirich Hiraj. I don't know if anybody remembers her and knows it. Uh, Miss Kirich, wonderfully, was the catering manager for Radley at this period, the 1940s. And she had actually been the understudy on stage for Vivian Lee on the West End. So you can imagine what she was like as a singer and an actress and so on. And I would imagine fairly glamorous person to have around the school. But already what you're seeing is this collaboration. It's this is this society is boys the women on the staff, the teachers and the staff, everybody is getting together to be part of this society. And one of the objections actually, which came from RCADS, the Amateur Dramatic Society, was that women and girls were allowed to take part in the marionettes, whereas you know, for RCADS, all the parts were taken by uh, boys, all the female parts were taken by boys. But this was a much more open uh, thing. They moved on then to Hansel and Gretel by Humperdinck. 
And this was actually designed to move outside of Radley. The idea was that they were actually, they took it into Oxford and were starting to show puppets for children. So that anything can run. But what they do insist on, as it said, they're trying to produce a puppet show, not merely a show performed by puppets. And I, I love the sense that, uh, you know, the marionettes have been given parts which are beyond their capabilities. <laughs> You've got to actually realize there are limitations to what the marionettes can do, but there's not. It, probably you can do huge amounts more than we would imagine. And then we've got Tony Heath's memory of the Beggar's Opera. And actually, I do have the, uh, the program for that particular 1954 version of it. So we've got uh, Chris Ellis as president, vice president, musical director, S. Lester, Jay Blair, Jowers, Heath, Hale, Penfold, Stage manager, M.H. Cook. House manager, C.R. Martin. Mistress of the wardrobe, Mrs. Porter. Assistants, Mrs. Rickards, Miss Legg, Mrs. Ashcroft, Miss Ball, Miss Helliard. Headmakers, people who are making heads. Uh, Docker Drysdale, Stubbs. The handmaker, the person who's making the hands, is Wren. The property men, Kempton, Barlow, Winterton. The wig and the hat maker, Mrs. Cairns. The designer of the proscenium, Hardy, the box office manager, Humphrey, the caterers, who are Charlotte, Millis, and Aylmer, sound engineers, puppet makers, operators, and an orchestra, which includes Field, Mize, and Blower, Mrs. Stewart on the violin, Mrs. Bo uh, Blofeld, Gowers, Latham, P.D. Stewart, Esquire, on the flute, Miss Armstrong, and Miss Rowlands. So already by 1954, this is 12 years on, it's become a really big thing. And you can see the kind of descriptions that it's getting. The effect is more valid than a live performance. It's, it's strange how the scale doesn't bother people. They're actually looking right at um, like it's peep show into the 18th century. So we come uh, to the moment where instead of producing what are quite extravagant um, and classical pieces, John Gay's Beggar's Opera, Humperdinck's Handel and Gretel, Mozart's Magic Flute, we reach the point where they start to write their own pieces. And Black and White Blues was uh, the one with uh, words and uh, script by Peter Cook, music composed by Michael Bawtry. And I have been sent um, a recording on disc, which today has gone away for digitization, uh, where Liz Arkell has sent us her sister Diana's copy of um, Black and White Blues. And I know there are quite a few copies of the records out there, which come up every so often. Um, and certainly when I was last talking with the Llewellyn Jones sisters, with Liz and Diana, back at the opening of uh, the new uh, chapel extension uh, last year, they were still quite happy to sit around and sing I Could Live on Love for anyone who was prepared to listen. I would also say the first time I met Michael Bawtry 
also he stood in the library and did me an entire song and dance routine from one of the marionette shows. I also like this uh, rumour that there might have been four separate scripts, but that nobody who mattered was actually offended by black and white blues. Unfortunately, now people might be a little more offended. And so one of the things I'm having to consider is, is how much we actually make available online once it's digitized. Michael Bautry has given permission for it to be made available. Then we've got people who are being invited in to come and see it. So we have the Yeoman of the Guard and this lovely uh, Lady, Lady uh, Flory, or later Lady Flory, uh, planning to come in a tiara. Fortunately, she didn't. And this wonderful description of Robin Grist's actual dancing, making his marionette dance like Fred Astaire with virtuosity and grace. I think Robin is on the call, or was going to be on the call today, but he's been writing also about uh, his experience. The next piece of original, totally original work is Monday at Mandolino's. And one of the things about this is that it took a long time to write so that by the time it was actually produced, I think uh, certainly uh, the principal uh, composers and writers had actually already left school by the time that Monday at Mandolino's was uh, shown. And we had a little note from Charles Commons saying that actually this is my, this is the copy of my copy of the record. I don't know where the record is. I can tell you where the record is because the record is inside the sleeve. So it's here. So I don't know uh, how we've come to have Charles's, Charles Commons' uh, copy, but we do. Uh, and I don't think I have another, but this is available and you can hear it online. So I'm going to actually, hopefully, play us a little bit of Monday at Mandolino's. And it would be lovely if anybody who's had any ideas or memories stirred as I've been talking would like to just comment on something. Once we finish this, it would be really good to hear. How's that? Yeah. Headline will spell my success when my night voice bear Heschel goes to press. When the Count of Monte Cristo is arrested in a bistro for strolling round Versailles without his trues, that's news, haha. Or an Itai signorina, a Sophia or a Gina, sees too much of Mr. X and Mrs. Sue's, that's news. Every carved garden cutie who is noted for her beauty and attention to her duty makes news. Night by special goes to press tonight in black and white for our delight. His night by special is on the way. Make sure to our coffee by ordering today. Every three inch headline will spell his success when his night by special goes to press. Yeah. 
Long time ago when we were nippers, we went to sea on ocean clippers. Hold down the sails in the summer gales, when old man sea saw his chance to rip her. Old man sea, old man sea. When we feel you starting beneath our feet, you bring back memories of the seven seas when the nights were warm and our youth. Was sweet. Okay, when the nights were young and the uh, youth was sweet. Uh, and you can listen to that on the digital archive for Radley College in full. Uh, so you've got the uh, you've got the link there. Um, the next piece, which was uh, an original piece, was actually written by Richard Wilson. Um, but we move on into the into the 1960s, and this is the, the period where it, it's, it always seems a little bit odd that um, if, if I talk to contemporary boys about uh, having a, a, an entire show about puppets, but actually one of the things to remember, I think, is that this was this was the era of super marionation. This was. Uh, Fireball XL5 and Stingray and Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet, great names which everybody remembers. And we did have, I've lost the piece of paper which had the name on it, Peter, Peter Diddley, who was G-Social, 1935. Uh, when, uh, when Sophie was researching la the last Old Radleyan, she talked to uh, a, a lot of people who'd been involved in drama or in uh, theater productions and so on. And Peter Dinnerly, who went on to a career as an actor, was actually the voice of Jeff Tracy and did that wonderful countdown at the beginning of Thunderbirds, the five, four, three, I'm not even going to try it. Um, but a very familiar voice. And that was Peter Dinnerly. So what you've got is... is um, television which is actually based around um, these very sophisticated puppet puppet shows you've got very sophisticated um, characterization I know that the Thunderbirds were all based I think Scott Tracy was based on Sean Connery uh, so that you could recognize who they are you've got uh, quite elaborate uh, quite enthralling stories you could tell that I was a real fan of, of Thunderbirds um, and actually talking very much, this was supposedly life in the 21st century, but done there through puppetry. And here's Radley, who are actually involved in this and making their own uh, films and stories. So we've got um, Mark Holford, who was uh, has told us about his time as secretary uh, with the Mikado, the mystery of the Red Barn. So going back into a little bit of uh, Gilbert Sullivan and a bit of um, Victorian melodrama. And I'd really like it confirmed whether we, they really did have the longest marionette strings in Europe. Mark, you're there. I can see you. You're going to tell us. I am. <laughs> I have no idea where this tidbit of information came from. But I, I do remember us thinking, sort of believing it. Um, the only thing, other thing I've remembered since, and I can't remember which, we had a col collapsing organ. I remember building that out of uh, various bits and pieces. 
Uh, I'm not sure whether that was in the Mikado or the, the Red Barn. I think it might have been in the Mikado. And I remember so, so, some of the some of the heads. So was it supposed to collapse, or was was that part of the? No, it was meant to collapse, and it was meant to come back back up again too. So the pipes right. sort of collapsed forward, and then then they they were all on strings, and they came back up. It's quite right. Funny. So the organ itself is a marionette. Well, sort of, I suppose. Yes, I mean yeah. it was a box with a you know, It looked like an organ, but as part of the joke, that the, the whole thing collapsed. That's about all I can remember. I'm hopeless at the past. That's my problem. Otherwise, and I don't think I've got any photographs either. Unfortunately, um, I will look at some point, but they're quite hard right. to. Well, the gaps that um, uh, you'll have been noticing is this is is where we don't have photographs. So uh, Richard Wilson was talking about uh, his production in the 1960s, and I've got no photographs of that. Um, I've got no photographs of Mondays at Mandolinos. All we have is that uh, that sketch, which was part of the uh, came from the Radleyan, and I presume is part of the. Um, the program design, but I haven't got that. And that is that gap that we've got in the in the logbooks where we just don't have the records. So we've got the Mikado and the longest strings. And then we come on to Toad. Now, what I loved with Toad, as clearly demonstrated here by the climbing team, uh, is this use of the mansion as a prop itself. So that's become the backdrop. And Toad, once it started to be discussed, it was always called Toad, never Toad of Toad Hall or anything else. I actually put Toad of Toad Hall down originally, thinking that Toad was just a shorthand. But actually looking into the, uh, into the logbook, it is just Toad. But what came through there that was quite fun was the memory uh, of how the animal characters were actually based on. So we've got Goldsmith as the stoat, Stoughton Harris. Oh no, Goldsmith is Toad. You can see that. You could see that he would be. Um, Stoughton Harris is the stoat, Burks as the badger with an OR tie. Uh, and how the badger was actually originally eventually given to Diana Burks to have in her doll collection. So that again would be something it would be lovely to know if that is still treasured in Diana Burks's collection, uh, tucked away in a corner. But I like this idea that actually we, what we're using is beginning to caricature, uh, caricature uh, dons. It's all very memorable. And here we've got Ratty, Toad, and Mole. I don't know, there was no record of who uh, Ratty or Mole was based on. I don't know if we've got anybody on the call who was part of that Toad production who does remember. Alex, you're looking like you might, no? No, I was, I was in the 1970s, but I think we repeated it sometime in the 1970s. I think you did. I think I've got some photos from the from the later the later production, but I think it is a reprise. How much was the uh, the script uh, taken from Toad and Toad Hall, and how much was it a new script? Do you remember? 
No, I don't, I'm afraid. <laughs> I just, <laughs> just presented uh, and uh, yeah. Hugo Langrish would have just sort of, it would have been there. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I, um, think, Nicholas... I think it was a new script. Nicholas. Yeah. You think so, Nicholas? Yeah. Well, we're, 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 we're coming to uh, Potted Lobster, which you would have been part of. Are you yeah. part of that, Nicholas? Yeah. 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 And that is described as underwater. It's quite funny because I've, I've just looked out. So, uh, I found an old script. And apparently I must have been lifting up the whale up and down at some stage. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's in big letters. Up, down. Well, the description of it was, was that only the head, as you can see here, was... was it was too big to go anywhere on stage. Uh, just the head. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It must have been the. It must have been the jaw then. I must have been operating the jaw. <laughs> <laughs> right. But potted lobster seemed to seem to get quite a lot of memories going from uh, uh, people as well. Uh, and yeah. now Hugo Langrish, who I'm sure very many of you will remember. Um, I did talk to Hugo's son. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, and said how good it would be if he, if uh, Hugo could be on the call today, but he's in no, uh, he's not able to join us at all. Um, but we do have his collection of photographs that he gave. So a lot of these, some of these are Nicholas's photographs that you sent. Well, I've, uh, yeah, I've, I've managed to put a backdrop of the estate agents where I'm sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> you can customize your your backdrop. So. <laughs> So that's that's where you are. So we can we can all see the estate agent very clearly yeah. <laughs> for the ghosts of Berkeley Square. And there he is. And I recognise that's my writing, funnily enough, on that left hand side. On that. Yeah. Well, these are from the minute book. So yes. there's a secretary. Yes. Hey Mish, hello. Are you? Yeah, um, I've got a. Uh picture um, from the the Radleian of the Toad. In fact, I wrote the um, a review of it. don't know whether anyone could, whether you can see it or not. Probably not. We uh, uh, The um, the Radleian is available online as well. So if people want to go back, you can read all the reviews. There it is so at the bottom. It. It's a sort of, yeah. it's a um, caravan. Mm -hmm. it, Can you hear me? Yes. Ah, and you've got that's a picture of uh, from Toad of the of the oh, yeah. Toad, the caravan at Toad from Toad. Yeah, yes. some of the some of the characters in it. Uh, Anthony Shelley, of course, whose whose father was an actor. Norman Shelley did um, did all, all all sorts of comedy stuff. Um. And um, who else was there? It was uh, um, Goldsmith, that, that's J.L. Goldsmith, the elder Goldsmith. David Taylor was very involved in it. I can't mm -hmm. remember whether you mentioned him or not. No, I haven't yet. No. But, yeah. And um, yeah, it's rather, it's a, it's a very, um, a very upbeat um, review, in fact. It was extraordinary the way that classroom fourteen suddenly changed into almost overnight into this theatre. Mm. 
know, with rate seating and so on. And um, I was I was in a classroom just further down in the slums, and Richard Morgan was in the room fourteen at that time, as it was. So room fourteen became the the home of the marionette. Certainly in my time, which was of course the the later years, um, 68, 69, 70, mm -hmm. 71, the final days. Yep. Amish, um, Jeremy yeah. here. Hello. Hello, yes. Uh, hello, hello. Um, I, I remember classroom 14 in my very first uh, week at Radley um, being talked taught, um, taught to by Richard Morgan. I think he, uh, I think that was his class. But I just, that was wonder, it. I just wonder what happened to, to room 14 when these productions were going. Did they just close it down and move it somewhere else? Well, I, I don't know. I think he just moved round. I mean, he was a pretty junior don at that stage. So um, I think he went where he was told or whatever. But um, I think what was what, only there for a matter of days. I suppose it's three or four days that it was taking place. I mean, I think the back of the classroom was shut off, wasn't it? And that was the theatre and that was used um for i mean we used it all the time the back of, but there was some there was a wall or something that got taken down yeah right yeah. right i'd forgotten that i think i'm right if, if, if i if yeah, that, sound, that sounds uh because we all beam it away in the back during the term time so to speak and during and on saturdays sundays whenever we did it um and then the wall got taken down for the actual performances and that uh, and i think if somebody said there were raked stairs i think that's right or raked Yes, rate seating, yeah. yeah. Seating. Well, yeah. well I, I did also come across a reference. I, I think, um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. There was a, a boy who died fairly young, and his father gave the wood for the theatre. Right. Because the stage was permanently constructed. I mean, yeah. as as was the balcony to fall off, as you rightly pointed out. <laughs> <laughs> Not but I, it was um, not it was rebuilt uh, uh, during my time. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. It, it was um, it was rebuilt during my time. Oh, when was that? Well, between I think it was after Toad, the year oh, following Toad. I'm sure they rebuilt the um, they rebuilt it the, the oh. stage, and so that there was a. We, we, so that we could do potted lobster, there was a removable floor, which there hadn't been before. I think we had a trapdoor on one. I can't remember. I oh, really? We, yeah. We built a trapdoor for something, um, or there was a trapdoor. Not very big. I mean, bad enough for one yeah. very net body to go down or something. But you guys who um, who actually operated uh, and did things in the production, I'm afraid I didn't, but I, I, I was very... Uh, friendly with Hugo because he used to teach me the organ and I've, I've kept in touch with him too, as far as one can nowadays. Um, um, I, 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 I can't remember what I was going to say now, but uh, um, I was going to say that t Tony Shelley, who you mentioned earlier, yeah. uh, he, he, he would have probably left about my time in 1971. So he probably wouldn't have done um, this show that's up on screen at the moment. No, um, no, he didn't. No, so the, yeah. question, the question I was going to ask... Yeah, he would have done... We go back. 
I'm sure Shelley did the voice for Toad. I think he he might well have done. He was he was he was absolutely cast for it, wasn't he? Yes. Um, what, what, uh, this, is what, this is what it says in the um, in the Radlin. Uh, this this very excellent reviewer. Um, the readers <laughs> were good, better I thought than last year, with an exceptional performance by A. H. C. Shelley as Toad. Ah, there you <laughs> go. The question I was going to ask earlier was um, um, Hugo was was as you know very very small, and I'm just wondering whether everybody that that operated in the theatre had to be of his size <laughs> to get in. <laughs> I was considerably taller than him, so I don't think so. But was the average size small of everybody down there? <laughs> I don't remember that. No, not not that I remember. No. Okay. So we've got. I think that Jonah, which was in um, uh, seventy-two, so towards the end of things, um, there were there were no longer um, puppets, string puppets. They they were rod puppets yeah. for that. Uh, yes, I, I, I think you're. That. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yes, so there is there is a, a, flexible, a not, so, not so much movement and so on. I wouldn't. When did they become rod puppies? Well, uh, seventy-two, I think. Oh right, yeah. Some, some of seventy-two. Radlian has a review of Jonah, which must have been one of the one of the well by someone called M. D. Holford. I think I've heard of him. Who is he? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was sorry that there, there don't appear to be any photographs of Jonah, unless if I just plop through quickly, no. come back to it. Unless this is, I don't. This is somebody rowing. No, no, um, don't, so I, I, no, that, no. I don't know what that is. So there, there were no images of uh, Jonah at all, um, but it seemed to be very um, ambitious again to to be producing one of the Townley plays as a marionette thing. So you're actually actually doing a mystery play there. Yep. Yes, I mean, I don't remember the history behind it on that one, funnily enough. Um, I can remember more about Toad than the one I was involved in towards my the end of my time. Um, well, I just wonder whether Jonah came about because you already had a giant whale. Would that be a reason for doing Jonah? Uh, I, I don't know. I can't tell you. There was a scene in Jonah which was inside the whale, and uh, the whale was sick, and we threw some sort of plastic stuff out into the audience. So, see, well, yeah, don't, yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, David, you were more involved with that, surely. That's that's the main thing I remember, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think there were rod puppets involved as well. I think we had a little area at the front, so it could be both marionettes and rod puppets, I think. So rod puppets towards the front of the stage and marionettes towards the back of the stage, I think. And uh, there was a big cyclorama at the back, so the, the, the back there was an area where people could uh, uh, push push things up from the bottom right at the back, which I think was a permanent part of the theatre. Yes, yes, you're right, yeah. 
Right. So we've got the ghosts of Berkeley Square we've been looking at, and Hugo Langrish calls a massive, uh, massive name in all of this. Nicholas Haddam, also. <laughs> <laughs> and your your memory actually of meeting David Bass, so going all the way back to there. And and now we're on two generations of marionettes because your father Richard was also involved with Yes, this. I mean he didn't um he didn't talk too much about that. I mean, of course, I, I you know, he was this fantastic actor. Mm. And um I, I, it's funny, I don't remember him talking about the, the marionettes at all. Well, I did come across a, a suggestion that um, somebody was trying to point, point, push the idea that you were either in the marionettes or you were in RCADS. Yeah. And you couldn't be in, you weren't allowed to be in both. <laughs> so you kind of like you were a wet bulb or a dry bulb in marionettes or drama. But I, I, I hadn't heard that one before. No. No, nor have I. <laughs> right. So we can wipe that one out. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, of course, you didn't have to act particularly because you, it was the puppets that were doing the acting. Yes, but we, we, we brought in, I mean, most of the voices were, were good yeah. actors, weren't they? Yeah, that's true. Um, well, we, we heard Monday at Mandolino's there, and the singers also are, are clearly, clearly good singers. Yes. <laughs> Uh, this is Peter Dimitriadi. It wasn't true you couldn't be members of both because I was in Maria Martin and I was in Hamlet. Right. Maria Martin is uh, as in Marionettes and Hamlet in the school play. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So that, uh, that clearly when is something... When was Maria Martin? Scripted. That was in 1966 or 7, Murder in the Red Barn. Yeah. Oh, that was right. Yes, of course. Yeah. So you're, you and I must have done it together. Probably. I was Maria Martin, if I remember correctly. Oh, right. As a young boy, as my first or second year. So it's 66 or 67. Yeah. I, I think we put a tableau up every gordet of um, Maria Martin. Oh. Was there a dungeon scene in it? Uh, I can't remember, but I also think there was a trap door that somebody mentioned earlier. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> That's me. Yeah. <laughs> so we so all so have the same memory. That's good. But in those days, there was a marionette theatre, which I haven't seen mentioned on this video, which was just outside the entrance to school. There was an actual properly designed marionette theatre. Yes. And, and that, people, that's... Sat, people sat in the passageway and looked at it. It was by the exit towards um, a social quad. Yes, that's it. That's yeah. where the classroom had been. Yeah, that's where. Yeah, yeah. And, and the... And the, the um... The marionette, the theatre is well. The, the the gubbins was at the back of the uh, thing, and and uh, at the front, sort of as you rightly say, where the entrance to the quad was, was a sort of cinema or theatre. What what I want to say, sort of. Well, there was a sort of village hall feel about the um, entrance, wasn't there? With a sort of glazed notice board, wasn't there? I think you got into it through school, the back. Anyway. Oh yes, at the back, yes. There was this door hidden within the panelling. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Claire, did you see the note from Simon Fisher about the rower, your mystery rower? No, I didn't see that. How hands? Uh, it said he's made in 67 or 68 for Gordy Day by Simon. And right. Hand, and it had a handle that parents and others could wind and the sculler would row. So, so the mystery is solved him. on the rower. 
for the mystery solved, solved on, the, on the rower. So he's a Gordy Day, a Gordy Day special for, uh, I presume, for Henley. That was, yeah, that was for Jonah, I think, wasn't it? Um, uh, it yeah, this is Simon Fisher, and uh, uh, I can't remember what it, I was just trying to get a Radley rower in a boat, and he would indeed lean forward, the oars would go back, and in, in general, it worked, <laughs> as long as people weren't too vigorous with the uh, rotating handle. And no, it wasn't. It was potted lobster that was on the gaudy day. Um, yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and this one, Simon, you also did for, for Gordy. And yes. Nicholas also had a memory of uh, the marionettes being set up to run automatically, I would guess, on yeah, with uh, old, old Gordy um, with the gramophone. Yeah, we, we used old, uh, in those days, we called them gramophones, record players. <laughs> Yeah, I just did a note in the chat about that. I remember there were various machines that made... Yeah, they, they the would just go round and round and round. <laughs> I think must have used quite a bit of electricity. Mm. That sounds a bit sophisticated. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit like the window in uh, Hamley's. <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's see what we've got. I mean, we're talking about backstage. So here's this wonderful photograph. Again, I've no idea who this is, unidentified from Hugo Language's collection. But I was intrigued also by this collection of a menagerie of animals, almost like a Noah's Ark. I don't know mm -hmm. what they were. They're, there's no mention of those. So new caricature, uh, characterized, uh, caricatured, ah, new heads modelled in clay and details here from Peter about how to uh, how the they were made oh, yeah. I remember doing that yep there was a dreadful smell of fiberglass I remember <laughs> great yeah. for glue great for glue sniffers <laughs> <laughs> there's a, uh, a comment in the chat uh, sounds terribly complex uh, Robert Ellis says, I was an operator involved with three productions, Maria, Martin, Toad, and Potted Lobster. Can't recall much about the last one, but two of us had to operate the horse in Toad, which required much close cooperation and confusing crossing of arms. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it will have been. Well, I, I really liked this uh, photograph of the Pirates of Penzance because it actually shows you how many strings there are. So you've got um, somebody here who's who's playing what appears to be a cello and a flute and a violin. Uh, there's a telescope, somebody dancing up on the table. And you who can was see the, who, that, when was the Pirates of Penzance? Uh, it's uh, I'm assuming it's pirates. Maybe it's not. Well, that's before my time. Yeah, me too. It's in the Langrish collection. Uh -huh. When did Hugo become the sick, well, whatever, the Don in charge? Oh, I'd have to look back through the uh, through the books. I think he arrived in Radley <clears throat> in 1959, so maybe fairly shortly after that. Yeah, because he yeah. was in charge when I was there. I mean, from he was the only Don involved, so to speak. Hmm. Right. Well, um, I think probably joined about 65. I mean, I went in 64, but I think I started 
It looks like 65. Uh, I don't remember he's, the he's down as president. Yeah. yeah. 65. So maybe this is not um this is not actually pirates. Well, looks like it, doesn't it? It looks like it, but yeah. Mm. But this is one of the issues where is that we have we have the photographs, but we don't have any dates or, or identification. So a lot of the time we're having to guess. So we uh Try and sort it out. We've got tape recordings. Uh -huh. I'm really yeah. looking forward. If Richard Wilson has got a tape recording, that would be really good. So hopefully he's hunting through his um, uh, hunting through his attic. And Tom Colville as uh, recording. So were the songs recorded separately, or were they sung actually live? I think they were played. I think they were recorded. That always the case. I remember they were recorded. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. I couldn't remember. I was trying to think about this: whether some of them were from professional recordings or whether we recorded them all, you know, on tape ourselves. That I can't remember. I mean, the case of the, you know, the Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah, well, it, certainly it, lo it looks like Tom Colville is saying here that uh, Chapel Choir are actually recording, or, or some of the singers are recording. Well, there you so, are. Uh, but we've got the backstage tapes there. This, I would have thought, must be trial by jury, but again, haven't got um, a. Yeah, and it looks like it? a it looks like a gaudy tableau, right? To me, right. Well, that helps because those are something I don't have a, a, a list of. But again, when I'm trying to... Uh, there's a bit of blanket at the bottom here, you see. Yeah. Blanking off the table or whatever. Right. Then we've got the Ricardo again. So one of the three little girls. And the question came up uh, about Tiny, the, uh, the newfie, mm -hmm. who uh, comes up in an awful lot of people's memories. I, I can imagine that if you do go into a classroom where you've got a dog quite as big as him, you would know about it. So there he is. Oh, it's Tiny, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Tiny, the new fee. Yeah. The Donald behind. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Peter, is that Peter Stewart? Yes, it's Peter Stewart. Probably, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a um it's a team photograph of the orchestra. So, oh, yeah. The embarrassing thing about Tiny was that Donald Payne had a sign on his door saying Donald Payne and Tiny. And, <laughs> boy, and boys like myself applying uh, for a music scholarship would go in there to be interviewed and meet Donald Payne and Hugo Languish. And get <laughs> yeah. And uh, so Simon has already talked to us about this. Good. Uh, this uh, this is the classic shot of oh, everybody. God. Now, did it really look like that, or is this posed? No, I think it looked like that. Well, it got like... like yeah. They all look pretty much as they're concentrating. It did on, like on occasions, it got like that, yes. And there wasn't much space, because I think the space was not more than eight feet long and about three yeah. feet wide. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
So I think they would have looked like that. Yes, I'm trying to yes. see if I know anybody there. Right. And again, uh, Peter, I like this uh, this yearning to be a puppet operator, but you have to wait till your third year before you can be promoted to the ranks of puppet operator. Yeah. Mm. I didn't know. There's a nice bit in the, in the Radleyan about that. There's a chap was uh, um, joined the society the previous day, the day before the four performances on Gordy. <laughs> he turned up to offer his services if required. So he was given hasty instruction in oyster operation. <laughs> fairly well in the circumstances. That still did not abate the shambles upstairs in the gallery, however. <laughs> a starfish was dropped half off stage and half wrapped round the lobster pot. The anchor was lowered into place so fast that it hit the lobster and in true life circumstances would have rendered him unconscious. And the lobster ended up so firmly wedged in the lobster pot that we only just managed to get him out for the next performance. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah. And the other thing, actually, I've just remembered is that when you went in, if, if you were facing the audience, on the left, up some ste steps, literally, you know, ladder-type steps, was a gallery where the sound operator operated. And I'm not sure whether he, he, he did the lights as well, but he had a little window from which he could see the stage. Oh, yeah. Well, the um, the Marionettes has produced more uh, award-winning people than any other society, pretty much. So, if we if we go back to um, Anthony Walton, who uh, was nineteen forty-eight, he designed the uh, the backdrops and costumes and so on. And I think mostly the backdrops for the Magic Flute, and he went on to win an Oscar for set design, the pr pr production design. Uh, in for all that jazz and nominations for his work on Mary Poppins and Murder on the Orient Express. Mm. And then we've got Robert Morris of 1955, uh, who became a professional stage lighting designer. And these are all people who learned their trade actually here in the marionettes. And I know when um, Anthony Walton, who I think went on to marry Julie Andrews, um, when we had his obituary a couple of years back, uh, he actually said it was Radley Marionettes that set me on my way. And it was people coming to see the Marionettes who encouraged me to go on into production design. So it's had a, a really profound impact on uh, some people's careers. Didn't Peter Cook um, take part in it at one point? He did. Yes, P Peter yeah. Cook wrote uh, Black and White Blues. Oh, yeah. So, yes. Is there He's anyone here today that, that uh, knew Peter Cook? I, I didn't, sadly, but I think he's one of the funniest men ever. No. no I, don't, I don't think Michael Bortry's on the call today. Ah. Uh. So, this... when did it close down and what made. Oh, sorry. I was to say, this again is one that I is not identified. Mm. Um, so possibly again one of your tableaus you think could be no? not sure 
It closed down. I, the last production was seventy nine to eighty, and I think what was what was happening was that um, each production took so much time and effort. By the time you'd made the designs, and and uh, people were finding that it was actually becoming harder and harder to do this kind of thing alongside of schoolwork. And this is the story of the 70s, very much, in, in the, across lots of things in the school. And then, of course, with something which requires such technical expertise, there wasn't a handover. So if you haven't got people who are being trained up right the way through from when they come in as juniors, you have to keep learning how to do it. And so I think by the time they got to 1980 and Hugo Langrish left around about that point, I think, um, it had just become unsustainable. Yeah. I, mm. I, that's my interpretation of it. Hamish, would you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I don't think that there was conflict with drama, but um, I, th I think... Um, there was just too much going on in the school at the time, really. That that, um, that some things had to um, had to give way, and I think the marionettes um, it, it was felt that they'd had their day, as it were. Hamish, I think that's right. It's Simon England here. I was I was very involved in the productions in seventy eight, seventy nine, and probably in eighty when it stopped. And you know they were they were great, but I think. Um, there was a lot of effort. And I think there were just fewer people interested in it. So it's mm -hmm. been really interesting for me this evening, seeing some of those pictures of some of the older productions, which were absolutely tremendous. And I think it just got to a stage where there were so many other competitive things. And certainly the, you know, I, I did probably about three years of the marionettes. And then I did a lot of the, um, uh, you know, the main stage productions and lighting and sound on the main stage. And, and it just, that almost became competitive. So I think the amount of time and then it just didn't have as many people who wanted to come and watch it. So I think it was it was just the end of an era, I think, in some mm -hmm. ways at that point. I'm sure that's right. Yes, I think so. And at that point, um, is that the point also where we change a little bit with drama as well? I think drama. Well, I think how the social plays were. There seemed yeah. to be a lot of social plays on that yeah. that time too, and they took uh, mm. time as well. Yeah. Yes. And dare I say it, the Haddon Cup was pushed yeah. to the fore as well, really, wasn't it? Mm. I think so. Yeah, yeah, there was that. And if you think about it, each one of these productions was was involving possibly forty people, and some of them up to seventy, and in a school of um, just over 400 at this point, that's 10% of the school involved in a marionette production. So it's really, really um, taking up an awful lot of people. And this I found as the review of The Beggar's Opera, which I thought would actually make a really good summary of it. Expensive in space, time and money, but was certainly worth it. And in part because of that, normal number of actors is doubled. So many skills needed, so many artists. The whole company needs such careful handling and so much understanding and sympathy. 
that here, if anywhere, is a society worth its keep. But I also wanted to finish with a, a lovely um, description from uh, the Radleyan in 1960, uh, where it says, the stage manager clad in faded orange boiler suit and semi-collapsed opera hat labeled with his rank sits amid a jungle of Coke and milk bottles doing his French prep. <laughs> so right. that I think is where we where we need to um, need to finish. But please come back to us with questions. Are there any other questions we didn't pick up on the chat? I think somebody said it'd be great if you could make the um, recording available. The recording is available. Brilliant. Yeah. Will you send us the link or something? Yes. Yes, we can do that. Very good. Thank you. So over to you, Sophie. Well, thank you so much, Claire, and um, thank you, Hamish, and everyone else that has chipped in. It's been such a treat to hear all of your thoughts and um, unusual to have this much interaction as well, so thank you. Um, we will be returning in the early summer with the next archives event, which will look at the numerous Olympians that Radley boasts among its alumni. And again, in the autumn, we will turn our attention to the Radley, Radley in the 1960s. Um, so thank you all so much for joining us and we will send a recording around. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks Bye. everybody. No, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Check our channels for the latest news and events from the Radley and Society.